The Gospel of Mark um, begins with John the Baptist quoting the prophet Isaiah and saying, Prepare the way of the Lord. After his baptism in the Jordan, Jesus comes up out of the water and the heavens are torn open. And the Spirit descends and God proclaims, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the central message of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is the Son of God. And His favor is on Him. Following His baptism and His temptation by Satan in the wilderness, and after choosing an especially unimpressive group of untrained, unskilled uh, men to be His disciples, Mark records a series of miracles. The purpose of the miracles, as I've said before, is to authenticate the message, to prove it, to give evidence for it. Mark does not try to explain the unexplainable. He doesn't bring the miracles down to the realm of reason or science. He does not set out to present Jesus as a dispenser of love commands or a social reformer speaking truth to power. The gospel is not crafted as a mandate or a manifesto for political change or moral improvement. The purpose of the gospel is to convince us, to reveal to us, to demonstrate us that Jesus is the Son of God. Everything else flows out of that. Rather inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark's aim is that we would see with unclouded vision the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and have assurance that He has come to set you free. Starting off near his home in Capernaum, Jesus realized, releases a man from an unclean spirit in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And his fame begins to spread in chapter 1. Next, looking to escape the growing crowds, Jesus goes with Simon and Andrew to their house. But there they find Simon's mother-in-law sick. Jesus heals her, and by evening, every sick and demon-possessed person in Capernaum is at the door, and he heals many more. The next morning, Jesus heads off to the Sea of Galilee to find a place to rest. But everywhere he goes, the crowd finds him, and they call on him to teach and to cast out demons. There is a man with leprosy hoping for a cure. Jesus heals him and tells him, don't tell anybody. But the man begins to tell everyone. So Jesus goes back home to Capernaum and is teaching a packed crowd when a paralyzed man is lowered through the roof. He can't get away. Heading back to the Sea of Galilee again for rest, he calls the tax collector Levi to be a disciple. The next thing you know, he's having dinner with every tax collector and sinner along the Sea of Galilee. Finally, again back in Capernaum, again on the Sabbath, the day of rest. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 3, he enters the synagogue and is met by a man with a withered hand. And here we go again. Here at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, people 
are in desperate physical and spiritual bondage, powerless to escape, crying out for mercy, forcing their way through the crowd to get to him, to touch him. It appears that Jesus has boundary issues. Soon, the crowd is pressing on him so much that it becomes his practice to put him into a boat and go offshore so he gets a little bit of separation from the people constantly calling at him. The whole time, Jesus is working, preaching, healing the sick, and casting out demons unable to eat or rest. Though in the flesh he's tired, Jesus is full of compassion. And with authority, he forgives sins. And with power, he releases them from bondage. I'm afraid that we're often too familiar, that we miss the power that we're intended to see here. So I want you to stop, let that marinate, let it soak in. Jesus has the power to release us from whatever bondage. Reading Mark chapter 1 and 2, as he's performing these miracles, Jesus is also grieved and angered by the tide of evil rising from the hearts of the religious community. From religious leaders, people in positions of power, people close enough to hear Jesus and see the miracles, but unable to understand. From Satan's temptation in the wilderness, every display of his power, every chain that he breaks is met with growing opposition. From mere doubt to open hostility. As he is releasing people from bondage, the scribes, the inner circle of spiritual leadership, says that he's breaking social convention, breaking the law and blaspheming against God. Increasingly, they're desperate to trap Jesus, to accuse him of a crime, imprison him, and contain the spread of his fame. All because he's releasing captives, healing the sick, doing what only he has power to do. They are so opposed that in chapter 3, verse 6, this is early in Mark's gospel, early, they're grasping for power, trying to consolidate power, enough power to overcome him. And they're already conspiring with the people that they're normally in conflict with to kill Jesus. Placing the miracles of Jesus side by side with the hostility of the religious leaders, those recognized by all around as the leaders of biblical scholarship, piety, and spiritual authority. Mark uses to confront us with a harsh truth. There are those sinners in bondage who by the power of Jesus are set free. And there are those who pretend to religious virtue and deny his power to their own eternal regret. As I prayed about how to enter into the text, I began to think of the many forms of human bondage. I thought about the atrocities like human trafficking that exist in immeasurable amounts in the shadows of our country, in our city, whereby men, women, and children are forced to do unspeakable and horrible things while living in constant fear for their life. 
surveying the landscape of my memory, I remembered a story about a man who spent 17 years cleaning a cesspool in a prison in China simply for being a Christian. I remembered a doctor who was murdered in Yemen. I thought about friends in northern Uganda who, in spite of great personal tragedy, are devoted to the care of children who have escaped abduction by the Joseph Coney army. Children who were forced to murder their parents, turned into child soldiers or sex slaves, and disfigured to remove all hope of freedom and normal life if they ever escaped. Closer to home, I thought about friends, even people in this congregation, who are suffering from chronic illness and cancer. I thought of others who are in anguish over a child's emotional and spiritual well-being. I thought about others who suffer from the ceaseless stress and mental toil of broken relationships. But finally, I realized that for each of us here this morning, the power of the gospel is not found in wrapping our heads with empathy around the bondage of others, but drawing necessity for Christ from our own acquaintance with bondage. Our own bondage. The private bondage living within the confines of our own homes. In our own hearts, the bondage of loneliness and rejection, besetting sin, chronic illness, physical pain, addiction, depression, conflict, anger, fear, those things known only to you about you. Friends, the power of Jesus is here in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 25, but only only for the people who need it. Only for the people who need it. In verse 20, when Jesus went home, the crowds gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So what in the world is going on? In chapter 3, verse 20, Mark starts to make a sandwich. Not literally, but structurally. It's a common thing that he does, the literary uh, technique, where he begins a story, inserts another story in the middle, and then comes back to it to emphasize what's in the middle. If you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, it's a wonderful thing to, to recognize because it points you right to the most important thing. Let me explain the importance of what I believe is happening here in the gospel. There's a lot of back and forth between Jesus being at home and being at the Sea of Galilee. While he's demonstrating his power in releasing individuals from bondage, community begins to form. It forms around the message of who he is. He chooses his disciples. He takes them up on a mountain. He gives them new names and appoints them to preach and even gives them authority to cast out demons. The crowd is growing into a fellowship of people who are free. First, it was the crowd at Capernaum. 
Then it was the crowd that was from the region of Galilee. And now there are people coming from Tyre and Sidon. It's the entire area of Palestine. But as, as the fellowship grows, so does the hostility that he faces. And by extension, those close to him are from a community in bondage. What's going on back at home with his family? The assumption is that they're at home and safe and the gospel is making it clear that home and family is not always safe. People live and move within the context of relationships, governed by ex the expectations of others. For the Jews at this time, the idea of personal salvation would be incredibly foreign. Salvation was a matter of being connected to the community. From Jesus' family, they obviously have probably heard about what's going on. Not only about his fame and popularity, he's drawing a lot of attention. I remember when Garrett went to VMI, it was like, don't stand out. Just don't be taller than anybody else. Just don't, don't stand out. It's where you get in trouble. They're concerned for his well-being, I imagine. They don't want him to come to any harm. You know, it's in their best intentions. They come and they want to seize him for his own protection. Perhaps they're also a little concerned for themselves. Because to have someone like that in your family creates an issue for you within the community. It is the force behind generational poverty, illiteracy, abuse, racism, and on and on and on. We're not subject only to individual bondage. We're subject to family bondage. I'm sure that there are those among you who know how hard it is to be the only believer in a family that doesn't believe. In verse 22, as the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, I'll stop there to say, the scribes are kind of the inner circle of the inner circle. They're spiritual leaders. They're sort of the aristocracy of piety and the keepers of religious order. They've come down from Jerusalem. It's the center of the kingdom of Judaism. It's the spiritual heart of the Jewish people. It's where the temple is, the house of Yahweh. It's the place of spiritual authority and spiritual power among the Jews. It is fascinating what Jesus overhears them saying in the rest of verse 22. He's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. These are two euphemisms that are full of weight. Beelzebul is an obscure name for Satan. It's taken from a Hebrew word that means dwelling. Or more precisely, the name Beelzebul means Lord of the dwelling. It's curious. Prince of demons, wondering where his power is coming from and knowing that it didn't come from them, and it wasn't by sanction by anybody else in Jerusalem. 
They have reached the only viable answer relative to this kind of power that it must be Satan, the one that April read to us about, the prince of demons. Jesus called them and said to them in, the, in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan rises up against Satan and is divided, divided he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. In calling them out, Jesus turns their muttering back on them. And at the same time adds more scale to the issue of bondage and the promise of his power. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. First we were talking about individuals, then we were talking about family, and now we're talking about the kingdom. We're talking about the temple and about Israel. We're talking about the house, the dwelling, possessed. The temple of the house is the house of God where God visits His people. He's been conspicuously, conspicuously absent for 400 years. Hadn't spoken a word. The entire kingdom has been taken captive along with its temple, its priest, its religious authorities. The kingdom of the Jews is under the boot of the Roman Empire. The king of the Jews is not from the house of David, but is one of the sons of Herod the Great, a tetrarch with limited power to keep peace under the authority of the Roman government. Who is possessed? Who is in league with Satan? The scribes are powerless pretenders whose authority is like that of a small old dog chained in the yard protecting an empty house. They're in bondage. They're a possessed people, a possessed temple in an overthrown and occupied kingdom, and they can't even see it. In verse 25, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. From the temple in the kingdom, Jesus measures the magnitude of the totality of the bondage around us. It starts at the very top. As my dad likes to say, the fish stinks from the head. It starts at the very top, and it works its way down. And in the way that Mark records it, he bridges for us the connection from the, the, the nation to the city, to the community, to the family, down to the individual. The kingdom is in bondage. The houses in the kingdom are in bondage. The people are in bondage. If Satan has risen up against Satan, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus is saying two interesting things. Satan is the Lord of the possessed in whom he dwells and there is no escape. But what they have seen is evidence to the contrary. If what they have seen is Satan being cast out, then the end has come. In verse 27 it says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
It is not Satan divided against Satan. A stronger man has come. Jesus is proclaiming that hope has arrived. That a promise of liberty and salvation is at hand. What is true of the lesser is true of the greater. His miracles performed with individuals authenticated the message that He is the Lord, the Son of God, who alone has the authority to forgive sins and the power to break the bondage of Satan. And what He's been able to do for the individual, He can do for the family, and He can do for our world. In verse 28... Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, all the sins, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever uh, blasphemies, sorry, what happened there? Nat, I guess. Um, But whoever blasphemies, blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Whenever Jesus says, truly, pay attention. He's saying, listen up. What I'm about to say is of utmost importance. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. All sins will be forgiven. All sins. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. If this causes you any worry, don't. The fact that it makes you think that you should be worried is evidence enough to show you that it's not a problem for you. The issue at stake here is that these scribes have taken the authority that is Jesus's and claimed it as their own. And said that that is that, that God is their God, that they're the people representing Him. They're His mouthpiece. They speak for Him. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's why you don't want to add anything to or take anything away from Scripture when you talk about it, because you rob it of its power. You make it your own, and you make it powerless. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They revile the Holy Spirit. It is what the scribes are doing, presenting themselves as a righteous voice of God and keeping their people in bondage. They are in bondage. They're blind to their wretched captivity. I mean, can you imagine to be so captive and not see it? They have no Savior because they need no Savior. That's why it's a sin that is never forgiven. You're never forgiven unless you know you need to be forgiven. It's the heart of the big lie that the Pharisees tell in John 8, 34. When Jesus, after he says that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free, they respond, what do you mean we'll be free? We've never been enslaved to anybody. Denying 400 years of slavery in Egypt, Babylonian captivity, Assyrian captivity, and the current captivity of the Roman Empire. How can they possibly think that they're free? Listen up, or truly, I say to you, 
If you find yourself torn to pieces by the bondage in your life right now, bondage in your family, bondage in our city, bondage in the country and the world, Jesus will not let that suffering go to waste. It is sight to the blind. Sight to the blind. It is the key to salvation for those without the power to escape. Jesus has proven by His resurrection that we have reason to hope. He has come with power to break our bondage. In verse 31, And His mother and brothers came, standing outside. They sent to Him and called Him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Here. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I would say quite simply that the only people who can do the will of God are the people that have the power of God to do it. Mark is returning uh, to the mother and brothers. The end of the story, he's returning to the previous story to put the top on the sandwich. He records that his mother and brothers are standing outside. Physically important that they're outside. They send to him and call him. And the new community is inside and they're around him. And the social convention would suggest that he should go outside. But he doesn't. I'm not sure what to say about this. I can reflect back on what I had the privilege to preach on last time in John 15. The agape love of Christ for us that he gives us for each other. When he is in us and we're in him. The highest form of love possible, only possible by the power of God in us, working through the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful thing to experience. I know you have. It's an experience of love that is greater than the love that you can have with just the natural love of a family. It's not ours by heredity. It's only ours by trusting Christ. Jesus' mother and brothers, those who are from his house, from his kingdom, are not those who want to put him in restraints. Unlike Satan, whom Jesus is binding, that can't be done. There is no one stronger, no one capable of plundering his possessions. When you belong to him, you are his possession forever. He will not let you go, and no one can steal you away. Let me conclude with this. Frederick Douglass, in his narrative of life as a slave, writes about the moment he overpowered his brutal slave master, Mr. Covey. He writes, He can only understand the deep satisfaction which I experienced, who himself repelled, has repelled by force, the blood arm of slavery. 
I felt as I had never felt before. It was a glorious resurrection from the tomb of slavery, the heaven of freedom. My long-crushed spirit rose, cowardice departed, bold defiance took its place, and I now resolved that however long I might remain a slave in form, the day had passed forever when I could be a slave, in fact. The power of Jesus may not change your circumstances. It may not cure what ails you. But the power of Jesus extended to you this morning in a sandwich that God has prepared for you in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 35 can change your bondage in fact. For those who look upon the powerful finished work of Jesus on the cross and want to know the deep satisfaction of binding the strong man, he is offering it to you. Do not let the day pass without considering without confessing your need for Christ, asking for His mercy, His forgiveness, and letting Him be the Lord of this world, of this church, of your house, and most importantly, your heart. <laughs>